Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Saji Monsberg, a managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation. Her work focuses on innovative finance solutions that change the status quo and raise private sector investment capital to further the foundation's goals of building greater resilience and promoting inclusive economies. Ms. Monsberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. You know, while I'm, I'm sure that most listeners of the show are familiar with the name Rockefeller, who, who wouldn't be, um, I'm guessing that they're probably a little less familiar with the foundation that John D. Rockefeller started way back in 1913. And so I thought before we get into your work specifically, I was hoping you could maybe tell me a little bit about the Rockefeller Foundation in general, you know, sort of what it does, where it does it, and what its goals are, that sort of thing. Oh, perfect. So uh, John D. Rockefeller, because of his personal beliefs and convictions, um, had always been committed to charitable giving and, and to helping those around him who had less. And that was you know, way, way before the Rockefeller name um, came to be known for what it is today. Um, over time, he, he took those beliefs and convictions and tried to reshape his giving into a more organized and institutional model. And that's essentially what led to the creation of the foundation back in 1913. And with that also very much shaped the field of philanthropy as it exists today. Um, so, you know, there, there's some fascinating letters that were written back then and memos. And then if you dig deep into our archives and, and start reading those, you really get a view of, you know, what the thinking was back then. And, and what the initial goal and purpose of creating the foundation was. Um, so I, I won't go too much into detail, but I'd say, you know, one was really creating an institutional model, but the second thing of it was also about making a shift from just giving charity to what was then termed scientific giving, which was about really understanding what the root causes of the challenges that society were facing were, and then apply a much more systematic and a scientific, you know, approach to addressing those root causes. Um, so, so your question about what we do, where we do it, and what our goals are. So our mission over the last 104 years that we've existed has always remained the same, and that is to promote the well-being of humanity. So that means that over, you know, the 100 plus years, we've worked in many different parts of the world. If you look currently, um, the bulk of our giving and work um, happens in sub-Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, and then in the U.S. Um, so, so that's the short version of uh, of how we got started and and where we are today. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I recently actually read a biography of John D. Rockefeller, and so much of it focused on uh, the charitable work, and it's really fascinating stuff. So, I would encourage listeners to, if you're interested in that, it's really uh, it's really an amazing story. I think. Uh, you know, in in the intro, I described your work in sort of a broad way uh, as focusing on innovative finance solutions that change the status quo and raise private sector investment capital to further the goals of building greater resilience and promoting inclusive economies. And obviously, there's a lot to unpack there. And so I'm hoping maybe you could help me do some of that unpacking. Uh, just starting, I guess, right at the beginning, uh, what's meant by innovative finance solutions exactly? So innovative finance solutions represent a pretty expansive and broad set of financial solutions, of financial mechanisms 
that uh, create effective and scalable ways of channeling private money from the global financial markets over to social, economic, and environmental programs um, that, you know, given the focus of the foundation, are to the benefit of poor and vulnerable people. And these financial solutions can take many different shapes and forms across different geographies and sectors. Um, and, and just to you know, give you a view of, of what is, uh, is included in the portfolio, um, we have solutions like uh, government level insurance against outbreaks and epidemics that, that are part of it. Um, there are pay for performance municipal bonds um, for the financing of, of green infrastructure. And then we also have things around social exchange traded funds. So it truly is trying to understand what the possibilities are in the global financial markets and what the mechanisms are, and then trying to bring them over into the development space and say, how do we create the bridge so that it it's possible for the private financial markets to come and invest in programs that, that would really drive impact for poor and vulnerable people and for the environment. Our first sponsor today is SeatGeek, a great low-cost, super convenient way to buy tickets for live events. You know, with SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed, and it only takes a few taps on the app or a few clicks if you access it through their website, SeatGeek.com. I've used SeatGeek both through the app on my phone and at SeatGeek.com, and either way, it's super quick, easy, and informative. You know, I just pulled it up and learned that Bob Seeger is not only still alive and kicking, I don't know, he's got to be like 80 or something, but anyway, he's going to be in town pretty soon, and I love Bob Seeger. Well, maybe not so much the mid-80s Bob Seeger, but the earlier sort of classic stuff. Also, the Brian Setzer Orchestra is coming to Cincinnati. They're this sort of modern swing band, which is something I really enjoy. The point is, is I wouldn't have known about any of this if it hadn't been for SeatGeek. Plus, with SeatGeek, you get updates on whatever venues, events, and performers you'd like to keep track of. You can even connect with Spotify, your music library, and Facebook to get notifications about artists you listen to or follow. Though if you're not a notification person, you can turn that off too. And when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar if you want. Best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So then this is just very different from sort of, the, I think, that traditional model that people think of is going to a going to a large corporation or somebody with a lot of money and saying, hey, will you give this money to, you know, promote this project in, you know, in X, in X community or something like that. This sounds like a very, a very different sort of a model or really set of models, I guess. Uh, right. And it, it is. And, and the reason we even have to consider such models is that if we look at the scale of money that is needed to, you know, deliver on the global development programs that we want to do. And, and when I say global development programs, I really mean global programs. It's not just a matter of what needs to be done in developing countries. We have a lot of issues on the environmental side, on the social side, on the economic side, in, in the developed part of the world as well. So if you look at the scale of the problem, and then you look at how much money is available in the philanthropic sector, and even in the public realm, it's, it's, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what's needed. So there is truly, there, there's still a need for, you know, the, the kind of more philanthropic or charitable 
money that comes from big corporates and, and from philanthropy, but there's desperately also a need to engage the financial markets and create um, scalable ways whereby they can deploy their, their money. And, and just to you know, add a little bit of context or, uh, to how big the gap is, um, I mean, back in 2015, the world came together to agree on the Sustainable Development Goals, and they did provide a very helpful framing, not just in terms of what the global challenges are, where we want to make a step change, but also how much money is needed. And it, it's estimated that on an annual basis, roughly, we need five to seven trillion dollars a year. And if you look at how much money is available and how much is estimated to be to be, you know, a funding gap, we're talking about 2.5 trillion dollars annually that currently you know is not identified in the public budgets or, or the philanthropic so um so in terms of changing the status quo it is about closing the funding gap and and doing so in, in new and creative ways that taps into the the trillions of dollars that are available in in global financial markets right and i guess one of the problems i would imagine with or one of the perhaps advantages of working through the private sector is that so many governments it seems are sort of going in the opposite direction if anything more more austerity cutting spending and and expecting many governments to put more money into this sort of thing oftentimes is is not well it's not something that's necessarily going to happen unfortunately um, correct i mean that's one of the challenges um, and other challenges a lot of the the problems that that the world is facing today um don't really respect geographic boundaries either um you know we, we can think about climate change as an example of that it doesn't just stop at one uh, boundary or one um border and, and doesn't extend beyond. So, this, so there's also a need for more global, more regional solutions. Um, I would say global displacement is another example. And if there are ways of creatively developing programs that address those challenges and at the same time access you know, money from a central source instead of individual uh, governments and, and making sure that it's a priority for them, that really gives you much more flexibility to go and implement the programs as right. well. So, so is this uh, along the lines of, I think of a, of a sort of traditional approach to, uh, I guess you could call it uh, uh, charitable giving or, or, or philanthropic endeavors to say, do this because it's the right thing to do and it helps people. And I guess sometimes that's, that certainly can be a powerful thing, but, but I find that sometimes that's not necessarily enough and creating incentives to make businesses or make the private sector feel that uh, both it's the right thing to do and it's advantageous in an economic way are also that that can be even a stronger motivation. Is there any of that involved in what you're trying to do? The economic requirements of the private sector, I think that is more of a guarantee that these solutions would would stay in place for longer and, and deliver impact, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. And I, I mean, maybe just a slightly different or a nuance to it in terms of, you know, what are the benefits that the development sector, the public sector gets out of working with the private sectors is extremely important as well. I think when you're working with global financial markets, one is you, you're forced, before you can even engage, you're really forced to take a viewpoint on what the problem is and, and develop a much better understanding of what your risks are. Um, you know, look at it again in the, in the context of what I mentioned earlier with, with natural disasters and climate change. Um, if you want to go 
say, engage with the insurance market and, and develop solutions that can better help you access money post-natural disasters, you have to start by saying, women, what are my risks and, and where am I exposed? And then figure out, you know, is there a financial mechanism that, that, that can be built where you can go and, and transfer some of that risk over to the capital market? So I think one is around, you know, it forces the public side to have a better understanding of the risk. The other is also it forces much more accountability and discipline as well. Um, and, and I think that is extremely valuable in terms of driving towards more impact. Right. You know, I, I also part of that, uh, part of the work mentions uh, or in part of that, the mission statement, I guess you'd call it, uh, it's about changing the status quo. And, and so obviously the, the assumption is in many instances, the status quo is not a, is not a good thing. And, and obviously there are various status quos that are bad and so forth. And in the most generic right. sense, you know, you want to take bad situations and, and, and make them better. But I'm wondering, are there any sort of common situations you encounter that, that you focus on altering perhaps? So I think that at the highest level, our reference to changing the status quo is more, you know, a reference to closing the funding gap that exists. Um, but in terms of, you know, common things that we come across again and again, and I mean, with this portfolio, we're not focused on a certain geography or a certain sector. We basically say there are places where you can engage with private capital markets and turn them into investable or insurable propositions and, and make sure that there's more money available and let's focus on those. A lot of it, I would say, comes down to a better understanding of risks, both from the development side, but also from, from the private market side. So, um, so yes, at the end of it, it is because we want to have, you know, create better uh, social, environmental and economic programs and, and, and really make a difference for the poor and vulnerable people of the world. Um, but, but a way of getting to that is we, we need to get more money. Our second sponsor today is Casper. What what are you sleeping on these days? Some sort of sad futon thing, or I don't know, maybe a mattress that's a little saggy, a little droopy, probably past its prime. You know, I get that nobody wants to spend much time thinking about mattresses and definitely not shopping for mattresses. The whole way the traditional mattress system is set up, you know, it's purposefully confusing and it's easy to spend way too much time and money and you end up stuck with something you don't really like. Uh, you know, words like disruptive, I think, are overused, but I'll make an exception here and use it because it's warranted. Casper has disrupted the sleazy mattress system and in a good way. First off, getting a Casper mattress is incredibly easy. There's no trip to the mattress store and no commission-based marked-up prices. It's a simple online experience and boom, you get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. You know, I've slept on everything from cots to waterbeds to fancy overpriced big name inner spring mattresses. And my Casper mattress is unquestionably the best thing I've ever slept on. And one of the things I love about it is it's got a combination of supportive memory foams and it gives you just the right amount of sink and bounce. And also it's breathable, which means it sleeps cool. And that's really important to me. I mean, my wife says I'm like a human space heater, essentially. Now, 
You should absolutely take my word about how great a Casper mattress is, but if you're the skeptical type, I get it. I mean, I'm hurt, but you know, I get it. The thing is, is you don't have to believe me. Casper has over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars. Plus, there's free shipping to the U.S. and Canada and a 100-night risk-free deal. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Plus, it's designed, developed, and assembled in the USA. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG and using promo code TPG. That's casper.com slash TPG, promo code TPG. Terms and conditions apply. Now, now there, are, there are some people who would argue that, uh, that this, these sort of endeavors are actually more effective sometimes when they bypass government entirely. And there are, all, you know, a whole set of arguments about government inefficiency and, and, and so forth. But I'm wondering, in your experience, do, do you find that it's better working through governments or in partnership with governments or perhaps working directly with communities and so forth? Or is it just sort of a mix depending on the situation? So I would say that for the majority of work that we do, there is a representation from the public side, so from the government side, and it could be, you know, at a, at a national level or it could be at a at a local level. Um, so the government and the public sector is represented, the private sector is represented, and then we have philanthropy as well, and and in certain cases, civil society and NGOs. And and just to give you a specific example. Um, we have a project right now that we are funding the Nature Conservancy to do around what's called uh, reef resilience insurance. Um, it is basically understanding that, you know, as climate change progresses, we're exposed to so much more risk from hurricanes, floodings and, you know, other natural disasters. And there's a massive cost to society not just economic cost, but also in terms of what it means for people that's associated with it. So we really need to, you know, this goes a little bit back to what, what do we mean by status quo? It was like that situation is not sustainable. We really need to think differently about what are the solutions that could be put in place to minimize the impact of, of those natural disasters. And if you think about it, and, and few people may realize this, but natural infrastructure like mangroves or coral reefs, provide a protective barrier for coastal communities. Now, over time, uh, we haven't really done a good job at, at taking care of that natural infrastructure. So not only do we have more risk of, of hurricanes and, and floods and, and those disasters, but what was a good protection against those uh, perils and disasters, we've also eroded that over time. So the whole question of, you know, okay, we have one problem, we had another we had a good solution in place but that's being eroded over time the public sector doesn't have money to go in and rebuild these reefs and maintain them so what do we do and you know there's an idea that the nature conservancy came up with and they have years and years of science behind what what a healthy reef can do that said okay how about if we bring together all of the sectors and the partners that benefit from having a healthy reef in place and that includes the public sector so in terms of the municipality and the parks department because essentially they own um, that natural infrastructure it includes the hotel associations and the businesses that are on the coastal front and, and benefit from having a healthy reef in place and then in our case you know then it, um, it also includes 
the Rockefeller Foundation to come in and say, okay, let's convene all of these different voices. Let's put some money in place to say, how can we all come together, figure out how we can get insurance to play a role in terms of providing access to uh, money, not just to do the, um, the maintenance work, but also to go and do the restoration if that's needed later and do it through an insurance product. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, I do think that you need to have all sectors represented in, in many of these cases. There are some cases where you may not need to engage with the public, um, because because of the nature of the the challenge or the issue, but but I would say for the majority you do. Yeah. What would you say? I mean, are there any sort of uh, typical uh, challenges that you tend to face in in bringing these actors together and doing this doing this sort of work? So uh, when we uh, look for opportunities, we look for a supportive policy environment. Um, because if you don't have that in place, if you don't already have, you know, uh, a government or, or the public authorities that are looking for new solutions, then it gets very hard to go in and, and try and convince them um, to change their minds about it. Um, so I think, you know, some places the, the, the supportive policy environment exists and some places it doesn't exist. Uh, but that is definitely something that we look for from the beginning. And if, if it's not in place, it becomes a challenge. The other thing is also we as philanthropy look at our money as being risk capital. So what we do here is, and, and we didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to mention that earlier, um, the Rockefeller Foundation provides grant funding for the research and development and then testing of some of these mechanisms, which means that we provide the upfront money that can, you know, kind of carry the risk of saying, let's try out a new solution. If it works, that's brilliant. We'll, you know, the public sector and the private sector can then take it to scale. If it doesn't work, then the money that was put up front for testing it and developing it was, was philanthropic money and, and we'll carry that risk. So we do bring that to the table, but you also at the same time have to have parties in the, in the public and uh, private space that see the opportunity and, and want to invest their time and effort into developing these solutions. Right. Now, a, a couple of things that, uh, at least a couple of the, the, the goals of the foundation, at least at this point, are, are, are building greater resilience and promoting inclusive economies. I was wondering if, if you could maybe, if, I don't know if one of those is perhaps paramount or one you'd like to, to focus on uh, first, but if you could kind of explain what that means in practice. So with resilience building, that's an area where the foundation has been focused, you know, a lot, both in, in terms of uh, for cities, uh, but also at a regional level. And uh, with, with resilience, what we mean is building the capacity for individuals, for communities, for, for regions to understand the shocks and stresses that they're exposed to, and whether those are climate-related shocks and stresses or social. So one, to understand what those are, and then to help them build the solutions and institutions that would reduce the impacts of those shocks and stresses and rebound faster. I mean, I, I gave the example of the reef insurance work that we're doing. Another example that, that I can give is um, something called the Forest Resilience Bond that, per, that we're currently funding as well. And it's very much focused on the situation that California has been facing for a number of years now, which is they have extreme um, drought situation on one hand and then the uh, wildfires on the other hand. 
And if you look at the, the challenge um, for both of them, um, you know, it, it, for us, it's not about going in and saying, let's reverse the effects of climate change. It's saying, if that is happening, what are things you can put in place so that the communities that are exposed to it don't suffer in the same way? And uh, again, without going into too much detail on the financial mechanism, if, if you look at it for both the drought situation and for the uh, wildfires, there is one thing that can be done that would have an impact on both things. And that is to go in and maintain the health of the forest that exists in, in California. And maintain the health of the forest is nothing complicated. Again, there's years of science that shows what the impact is. It is to go in and clean up the forest. So remove dead trees, remove shrubs, bring it back to what's considered a healthy state. And if you do that, there are two effects. One is that when a fire starts, it has a natural burn and then it burns out and it doesn't turn into a wildfire. Two is when the snow falls, it actually, instead of getting stopped, it falls all the way through the, through the floor of the forest and then flows through to the reservoir so that the quality of the water that you have um, and, and the volume of it is, is much greater than otherwise. So it, that is an example of saying there is a shock and a stress that's related to climate change. Um, we're not trying to reverse climate change in this instance or say, let, let's stop what's happening, but say, what are the solutions that can better protect the community and the people that live in that area so that they don't suffer from um, serious right. impacts? So, so in a way, it's sort of a uh, smaller scale, more doable sort of thing, I guess you could say, in a way where you can actually make a make a discernible impact. That's not to say, certainly, that we wouldn't like to reverse the larger effects of climate change. Right. But given what we have to work with, basically, that that seems to be perhaps the best use of uh, of funds to that. And in a way, it sounds sort of like a almost like a preventative think at least what you were describing with the uh with with the california uh the droughts and and then fires and so forth yeah i mean i mean the whole climate world has, talks about mitigation and then adaptation and mitigation is basically saying how do we stop all the practices that's contributing to the uh, rise in temperature and adaptation side which is where the resilience part fits in is, is more about saying we know some of these terrible things are going to happen, even with all of the efforts that are focused on the mitigation side. But what do we put in place so that the communities still can continue um, to, to, you know, not be to, to, to be able to have access to livelihoods, to be safe, um, to uh, to live healthier lives and, and so on. Right. So focusing on one in no way suggests that the other one isn't isn't at all important. And I would guess with climate change, especially from what we know about the science, a lot of the effects are already sort of baked in, so to speak, meaning that we, we can't get away from certain changes because of past, uh, you know, human activity and so forth. And so we need some sort of a plan to deal with that. And it sounds like that's one of the things that you're trying to promote, basically. Yes, correct. And then the, the other uh, goal that, that you also mentioned um, that the foundation has had for a number of years now and focused on has been around building inclusive economies. Um, and I, I won't get too much into details with, with what we mean by it, because that's almost like a topic of discussion for, for, for a separate podcast. But I think, I mean, we, we look at as an inclusive economy, as in we have five characteristics that, that we've kind of put forward. 
uh, one where there is, you know, equal participation from the people. We, we talk about equity. It, it's about growth, um, stability, and then sustainability as well. And just like with resilience, there is no one program that the foundation can put in place, either from an innovative finance point of view or from the other work that we do that would, you know, go in and address all of these elements. Um, but we try to say, you know, where is there an opportunity to do something different that would really make a difference? And again, if I were to take an example of something we're doing in the innovative finance space that it goes in and, and attempts to build a more inclusive economy, I, I would mention a project that we're doing with um, a blockchain um, fintech company called BankQ about building economic identity for displaced populations. Um, which gives them a chance to better get integrated into the the new home countries or societies that they end up uh, moving to. Right. Well, I was thinking you mentioned that example. I think, you know, the idea of inclusive economies and inequality, of course, it's been a huge issue, especially in recent years. And, and I think sometimes uh, from you uh, from a U.S. perspective, we, we have our own notions of what a uh, what unequal, non-inclusive economy is. But sometimes, especially if you look at the developing world, the situation is far more uh, uh, far more non-inclusive than certainly we're used to in the United States. And there's even more, I think, challenges involved in creating inclusive economies, I would imagine. Yep, correct. And then it's not just about access to economic opportunities. It's, it's about so many other things as well. Sure. You know, I, I know we're, we're running a, a little bit short on time, but there is one uh, final question I would love to ask you. Uh, uh, what sort of resources, you know, books, documentaries, online resources or what have you, would you recommend for listeners who are sort of interested in getting a more in-depth kind of understanding of the, the issues we've been talking about? So I'll mention a few different sources. And I think, you know, for, for the listeners that are interested, once they get to those sources, they can always dig deeper and, and find more. But there's a fascinating book that Bob Schiller came out with a few years ago that's called Finance and the Good Society. Um, and I remembered reading that a few years ago and, and was quite inspired by it. And, and it, it, it's not a completely, you know, same reflection of the work that we're doing, but but it touches upon all the same elements of how financial markets can be brought to to bear in terms of um, promoting the well-being of society. Um, there is uh, something called the Journal of Sustainable Finance and Investment that is uh, an interesting source as well. Um, more recently, there's something that a newsletter uh, called the Impact Alpha brief that was started that covers at a very high level all the stories and the new things that are happening in the innovative finance space that you know I I, I look at on a daily basis um, to to get a better feel for what's happening outside the sphere of where the foundation is working um, and then lastly I'll mention that we the Rockefeller Foundation did a publication with foreign affairs last year it's called the innovative finance revolution um, and if anybody's interested in accessing that, you can do that through through the Rockefeller Foundation website. Great. And I will make sure we have links to all of that on the show notes as well for folks who want to check out those resources. All right. Well, on that note, we will we will wrap up. Uh, Saja Mansberg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors, SeatGeek. Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY. And Casper, Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash tpg and using promo code tpg. You know, listener support is a huge help to us and we do truly appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to get in touch with us for whatever random reason, you can mail us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.